All right, so this is Andrew Krimkovich with the Milk and Mead podcast. This will be this will be the first one that we're gonna do, and I, I'm just gonna go right into probably one of the most controversial, the most hot topics of of our age. And this is not just in the American culture. This is in cultures worldwide, and, and people are fighting for it and fighting against it. And I see, I see why. I understand why. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna approach it from the biblical standpoint, and and try my best to bring clarity, to bring this perspective, so that maybe if anybody listens in, they can get a healthy, a correct, a biblical approach, even though it is biased, because I am for the Word of God. I am, I am standing in opposition to what God calls sin. And I'm not standing in opposition on my own terms. It, it, I'm literally lifting up the Word of God and reaching out through this to let anybody who is interested know what does the Bible say and why uh, to the best of my ability. I'm not a, an expert on anything, but uh, I'm passionate about letting God's Word be clearly sounded from whatever whatever um, realms it comes from. So, um, homosexuality and every other form of sexual immorality is sin against God Almighty, and the wages or earnings of such a life, if unrepented, of by the time one dies, uh, the wages are death and eternal damnation to hell. That's the biblical standpoint on homosexuality as well as many other things. But we're going at, at homosexuality because the, the LGBTQ community and movement is so effective. And it's so, uh, I, I'm going to say this, it's so targeted to make sure that others also agree with it, which which... To my view, I don't, I don't believe that the way it's being done in some areas, I don't believe that it is truly uh, graceful. I believe it's somewhat um, kind of bullheaded, somewhat, somewhat forceful. And the fact that it's being presented as a teaching, as a necessary uh, thing to be accepted, um, doesn't seem like there's even that free choice, unless you want to get consequences for being against homosexuality. So... The natural and the biological. I'm going after this first because God created man and woman so that there could be a fruitfulness. And if it wasn't for in vitro and if it wasn't for surrogate mothers, uh, there, would be, uh, there would be no societal growth or expansion if homosexuality would continue forward. Uh, meaning that not, not like, oh, okay, just because 50% are homosexual, the whole world will now die and have no children. But no, the only way to actually have children within a homosexual community or, 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 or bond would be through the use of another person. Whether another person's seed, whether another person's egg, whatever it might be, even their body, if they're going to if they're gonna take care and, and give birth to that child. That's the only way it will happen. It would have to... It would have to fan out from what the, the regular, the normal constructs of marriage should be. One man, one woman together, faithful, never sexually immoral against each other, never adulterous in the relationship, never uh, sexually explicit in any other way. But that's impossible uh, unless um, through adoption. The only way that homosexual couples can have children without being sexually immoral in in that kind of adulterous fashion would actually be to receive children from another marriage just just to receive them or to to get uh, children from 
an orphanage, an adoption agency. But everything else would have to practice very odd things like in vitro and uh, surrogate parents. And that's that's all odd. That's that's not normal. It's not common. In many cases, it doesn't work. But but that's not the God-ordained way to have families. That's not the God-ordained way for, for anything. And, and God did say in the very beginning, be fruitful and multiply. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So just in that, God created them male and female for a reason because they are perfectly coupled together. They, they are almost complete opposites in in the areas that they need to be and, and there's an incredible union that God created on purpose with a reason we'll talk about it later but there is a purpose behind the way that things are the the the, the positive the negative the, the the male the female the gender the emotional the mental the physical everything that goes into it is is a perfect combination but it's found in two different separate genders that don't fluidly interact within each other is there's no such thing in in god's view in the biblical view of a man that feels like and can choose to be a woman or a woman that feels like and can choose to be a man just by feelings that the actual gender is not something assigned at birth and that's something that i've been coming across now whenever i take my kids to the uh to the doctor now when we fill out and update the medical forms they always have you know what was the gender assigned at birth on that paperwork and I do my own diligence and I cross out and I clarify, you know, actually gender is not something assigned. It's something discovered. You know, it's something we find out because we look down and we see what it is. It is what it is. And it's very clear and easy to identify what is my gender. I look down and I see exactly what I am. And I see, I see the rest of my life develop, my body develop. Everything develops fairly, fairly characteristic of your gender. Not the one that you were assigned by a person or by a choice, but one that you were created to have so jesus christ defined marriage when he was prompted by a question on divorce um he was referencing genesis 2:24. Uh, the reference was therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed now in matthew chapter 19 verse 36 the pharisees were trying to stumble up jesus they were trying to mess him up and trip him up on his own words so they came up to him and they were like you know is, is it cool to divorce is it cool to do this so they said it like this in uh, matthew 19 36 and pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now I'm going to unpack this real quick because there's actually a lot here. So, they were asking about divorce and they already knew that it is between man and woman. So they said, you know, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? And he, sa he said, 
No, no. The one that made them from the very beginning, he made them male and female. God identified genders when he created them. And he said, a man shall leave the authority, the household of his father and his mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife. So man shall be with his wife. And wife is not just a label. It's an actual identification that it is indeed a woman. And the man is not just the identification of the man role, but it's actually also the gender. It's everything that goes with it. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're not two anymore. They're not living their own independent lives, just doing whatever they want. They're now one flesh. And then it says in the very last thing, says verse 6, says, what therefore God God has joined together, let not man separate. God is the one that ordained and created marriage. He didn't necessarily ordain it to have this huge ceremony. But, I mean, that's that's our human tradition. That's different across the board culturally. There's all kinds of different ways of actually following through with a marital ceremony. But God did create the union. It was created in the Garden of Eden when God brought to Adam Eve and Eve said, you know, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is my mate. This is my partner in life. And, and she has her role and I have mine. So uh, so in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, it clarifies that God is the one that joins people together. So marriage is not something that's so easily redefined unless you want to just put a whole different word on it. I mean, there's people that redefine a lot of things, but the, the original definition is, is really what it is. Marriage is a union between a man and a woman. And that's done by God. So if we want to just put our own twist on things and do it, don't even call it marriage. You could if you want, but in God's eyes, he doesn't view any union between a man and a man or a woman and a woman as marriage. Not in his eyes. And I'm only speaking because God does not allow us to redefine his standards. They're his and they are eternal, and they don't change. There are things that change, but but his standard doesn't. There was certain uh, ritual practices that were going on with the Hebrews, with the Israelites, that don't carry over to New Testament Christianity. They don't because they were there for the Jews. The shellfish, the dietary restrictions, the clothing restrictions, like all of those things, they don't carry over. But the commands of human-to-human relationships do. Not the part where Israel is used as a judge on on all the countries surrounding it, where when they were going through the wilderness, they began to, through God's command, they they began to destroy the nations before them. That was like a judgment. God used Israel as the judgment on those countries. That's not a free will kind of thing. We don't do whatever we want and kill whoever we want. That's That's not our freedom or our right. But it is something God used for a time, for a reason. But there are still the 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 faith. Uh, the faith aspects that don't change. God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. His standard doesn't change. And and sometimes people want to change things and say, you know, God's different now. He was mean back then. He's nice now. It's like, no, no, God, God is still going to pour out his wrath on all human flesh. All human flesh that is not repentant and doesn't believe on Jesus. According to the Bible, God is still going to pour out his wrath. And I'll clarify what that what, what I mean by that because I, I don't think a lot of people understand that uh, just because in John 3.16... Um, we see that it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. But the very end of chapter 3 in the book of John, uh, John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Many people love the 316 verse, but that's not all of it. I mean, that's a really good summary statement of of what 
God did by sending Jesus Christ. But that is not all of it. Because the wrath of God remains and abides on people that refuse the Son. So anybody that refuses Christ in their life, if they live and die that way, the wrath of God is going to pour all over them. And they're going to go to hell. And that's eternal. You can't pray your way out of hell. Nobody can, can, can do anything to get you out of hell. Because Christ did everything to get you out of hell. But this is a decision we make now while we're heart, our heart is still beating. So... I think a lot of people uh, have hopes of making changes as if God has to change with the times, but it's us that need to remain faithful because if we make so many changes, we'll also make changes in our vows, changes in our commitments, and that won't be wise if our vows and our commitments for a, for our marriage should be foundational, and, and God's vows towards us are foundational as well. So Paul also defined marriage and its different parts. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So man and woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. So Paul is specifically speaking about the fact that some people were trying to remain single even though they were burning inside to have a, to have a woman. So uh, Paul was saying, you know, it's, it's good if you can stay single, do that. I mean, it's good because then you won't have like a divided heart. You won't be like, you know, I want to serve God, but I have to be at home serving my family at the same time. I, I can't be as completely sporadic in my walk with God because I have these at-home requirements and, and, and duties and responsibilities. But if you do have the gift of singleness, which is a choice, it's a decision. It's a, sometimes it's even a God-ordained gift. Some people just don't have any interest in marriage. That doesn't mean they can go and sleep around and just fulfill their sexual desires. Their sexual desires will also follow through with that. So, uh, but there are people that were burning with desire, and they 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 were you know tempted to actually sleep around. And Paul said to them, you know, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, uh, just. Get a wife, you know, get married. Woman, get a husband. Men, get a wife. But it also clarifies men and women. It clarifies what a marriage really is. So, let's go into the spiritual. The spiritual meaning of marriage. There is actually a spiritual purpose and God actually clarified it, so it's pretty cool. His uh his intended meaning of marriage is clarified in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 31 to 33. And it says, "Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So it does it does go back to Genesis, what we just mentioned, but it, it clarifies even more. Paul goes even further. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So it, it, it said elsewhere, you know, husbands, love your, love your uh, wives as Christ loved the church and died for it. And uh, wives, love your husbands or respect your husbands uh, because this is pleasing to the Lord. So uh, in, in the way that we relate to our wives, husbands, the way that we relate to our wives, it gives an image to the world of the kind of love with which Christ suffered and was sacrificed on our behalf for our salvation, for our good. Christ made an incredible sacrifice for us. And, and in that same way, we should love our wives in such a manner. And the church, considered the bride of Christ, the church 
cleans itself up, gets purified, walks in obedience to God and to the words of, of God poured out in Scripture and New Testament as well. That is the imagery that a woman gives when she submits to her husband and follows him and doesn't try to take headship over him and doesn't try to step all over him. When a woman actually takes her womanly, God-given role of a caregiver, support, uh, encourager, uh, fellow partner, but not equal in role, uh, different roles, but equal in value. If a woman takes that position that God has ordained, then it will be a beautiful marriage. It will give the world this incredible view of, of, of the obedience that the church has to Christ and the love that Christ has for the church. And that's the thing. It's, it's interesting because the word mystery is usually used in the New Testament as something that was at some point hidden but became revealed after the New Testament or within the New Testament. A mystery is a profound truth, something that was hidden, something that was covered up. And because of what Jesus did and how he revealed the truths, uh, people began to understand and it was explained through the through the epistles what that mystery was. So the mystery is that marriage is not just, you know, guys are lonely, they need women, and women are lonely, they need they need men. It's actually an image of Christ in the church, and it's something God ordained. That's why there has to be a faithfulness to the way God said it, because God's the one that's showing himself off through marriage, if it's done honorably. If not, it doesn't give God the glory, it just gives people their own personal carnal satisfaction. And you can have satisfaction in this world and be totally wrong, but if you live and die wrong, there's judgment at the end, and that's why the Christian message is always pouring out the truth, standing against things. Maybe not necessarily, the point is not to force anyone to adopt our views or adopt the views of the Word of God, but the point is to warn people because we want people to flee from the wrath to come. And the wrath is going to come on anybody that doesn't repent of a life of sin, no matter how they feel about that sin. People feel about stuff in all sorts of ways, but that doesn't mean those things are always correct. And it doesn't mean there won't be a punishment and a judgment and an accountability before God Almighty for that. So we're worried. We're worried for people's salvation and their souls. So Marriage is serious and it's purposeful to God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So people that mess around with the idea of marriage, people that mess around within sexual relationships, all of that will come before God. It's, I mean, it's already before Him. He sees it all clearly. But it's going to come before Him in judgment. And nobody wants for any of their deeds to be judged like that because nobody's found innocent in God's eyes. That's why Jesus died on the cross, not for 99% of the world, but for the whole world. So the whole world, anybody in the world that believes the gospel can turn to him and be saved. It isn't just for the, for the really bad. It's not just for people with felonies. It's not just for people that look bad or have a bad rap sheet or have an apparent family curse. It, it's not just for those people. It's for the sweet old lady down the street that makes cookies for all the kids. And that's, that's, that's just a... I'm just making up that example, but I'm sure there is a sweet lady that makes cookies for kids. I mean, the people that you would imagine don't need any salvation are the ones that need it just as much as you. 
their sins might not be as blatantly obvious, and they might not have a a a a, a record for it. They might not have a, a you know a rap in the city for who they were and how they've lived life. But they are still sinners against God in nature and in deeds, and we have to consider that. So, here's the commands of God. A lot of people talk about God's love, and so does the first um, first book of John. So, First John, right before the book of Revelations, First John says this, uh, chapter two, verses one to six. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there is an expectation of obedience for those that say they have a relationship with God. Anybody that claims it should live it. You know, anybody that names the name of Christ should depart from iniquity. This is just the New Testament. And we're explaining this because, well, I don't know if every Christian is explaining this. I think a lot of people sometimes just 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 harp on people, just point out sin, 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 and then say repent, repent. But they don't actually clarify why does God say this and what does He say. So uh, we'll go further. First uh, John chapter three verses four to ten. It says, "Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin." No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, God, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there's a, there's a high expectation on love. There's a high expectation on obedience. There's also high expectation on faithful repentance. Repentance means you change your mind on an issue. Maybe because of social influence, maybe because of a life experience. But the, the call of a Christian, the call of the Bible is to bring men to repentance, to repent from their life choice and life ways and life decisions against God. And God pours out what those were. And we get to align to it and say, okay, uh, that's wrong. Uh, I'm doing this and God says that. So either I'm going to repent and turn to him or I'm going to keep on doing it and either make excuses or just flat out ignore it, whatever it is. But there is a need for repentance. There is a need to avoid and get away from sinful living. So being somebody that sometimes scuffs up their shoes is different from someone that makes a habit of intentionally scraping their shoes on the asphalt just to get marks. People that make mistakes or, you know, fail or fall into temptation at little moments is not the same as people that choose to willfully live in something they know God says don't do.
and they don't repent of it. And maybe they make an excuse for doing it or to try to reason why, why it was okay and why God didn't really mean it or why God's mind changed on that issue. So we can't keep on sinning if we say we're Christians. It just, there should be this, this, this part of our heart that seems torn over sin because when you, when you choose to repent of your sin, you believe on Jesus Christ, the sacrificed, murdered Savior on a cross who bled for our sins and was risen on the third day from the grave, that Jesus Christ, the one of the Bible, when you believe on him, uh, God gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this desire to obey just captivates you. It captivates every Christian because the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God and it causes you to live a life ever increasing in maturity in holiness. And that means we begin to obey. We get baptized. We turn away from obvious sinful practices. We learn by reading the word and we learn by confessing to a faithful brother or a faithful sister, whoever we have with us, uh, so that they can learn to pray for us and we can be part of the body of Christ. Through that, we all learn to mature and understand our sins are not just the big ones. It's even the angry thoughts we have or the bitterness that we gain when people offend us. Our sin really is always before us and we really are understanding our own sinfulness. We are prone to offend God, but because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we can have a right relationship with him. Not because we followed the rules enough, but because somebody paid our debt. And out of gratitude for that, we turn to him in obedience, in ever-growing, fervent obedience. But a lot of people, they don't want that. They don't want to turn in obedience. They just want to be forgiven so they don't have a problem at the end and just to keep doing whatever they want to do. And that's a problem because that means that either one, we didn't genuinely turn to Christ and we just said it and maybe we felt something, but that doesn't mean it happened. Or two, we're just stubborn in our faith, which could also destroy our experience of this faith. We could destroy our relationship with God. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So our love must also be sacrificial, must be real. We can't just say, I love God, I love God, but we don't obey him. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 to 24. And this is his commandment, the commandment of God, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. So there is a personal conviction we experience in this life when the Holy Spirit of God fills our life and changes us. We begin to abide in Christ. We begin to desire obedience to to happen in our life to the Word of God. But if you spend no time in the Word of God, you might actually be fooled by some of the music out there, by some of the celebrity commentaries out there, by some of the expressions of, of faith in movies you might see, maybe in some literature, maybe uh, uh, social media. The expressions could be false and watered down. I'd say, if anything, why not find out, are those accurate depictions of what the faith is, what it means to have a right relationship with God? Because this is your soul at stake. I mean, that's 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 the truth. This is your soul at stake. And that's why sometimes you see people so passionate. And we're, we're all, 
we're all a mess and we're in progress. So sometimes the person with the right message has not yet got a tight rein on his tongue and doesn't know how to gracefully express it. I struggle with my own way of understanding how to express the right thing at the right time in the right way. I know what I should say, but I struggle with my emotions about it and I might come off too stubborn or, or too insensitive. And that's my wrong. But that doesn't mean that the truth that I'm saying is wrong. But I could just close your ears by my attitude. So shame on me if I keep someone from hearing the truth because of my attitude issue. But that's something we all need to learn to grow past. So just because somebody says something rude, if anything, if you have the ability to just dismiss the attitude and maybe just take note of what they said and go and look it up on your own, I say do that. If that's at least what you'll get out of it, I say go look it up on your own. Go find out what the Bible says about this because it's your soul that's at stake. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means a covering and a, 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 an atoning for our sin. Jesus Christ was the payment for our sin because we owed God with our lives. Because the Bible says the wages or the earnings of sin is death. Because we're not just sinning against a celebrity. We're not just sinning against our parents. We're not just sinning against a political figure. We're actually sinning against the one that gives us breath and a heartbeat, and, and a chance, and a choice, and an option, and circumstances, and problems we don't want, but situations we need. God's the one that does that. So when we sin against Him, we beg for death, because life comes from Him. Anything opposite of life is death. And God is life, and love, and truth. And yet, He's also judgment, because He will judge righteously the wrong in this world. And honestly, I think if we really look at it, it shouldn't be hard to recognize that we might want judgment. We judge people all the time. And even if we never say it, in our heads, we judge it all the time. We see something, we think, okay, that's wrong, that's bad, that's not cool, that person's mean, it's insensitive, how dare they, I'm offended, whatever it might be. But, but God's judgment is on, on the evils of this world. But His judgment is so much more strict than someone would imagine. Some people think, you know, like a, a rapist or an, a, a molester. I mean... Those, those people need to be judged or, or someone that takes advantage of children or someone that, that, that kills someone to take their money. Like those people should be judged. But God also says that if you hate somebody in your heart, you're just as guilty of, of murder as the person that takes the body and kills it. Or if you lust and you undress somebody in your eyes um, that you see, you're just as guilty as somebody that goes and takes a dude's wife and takes her away from him and just ruins that marriage or somebody that that walks away from your marriage to sleep with someone else i mean you're just as guilty of adultery if you undress someone with your eyes as the person that physically ruins a marriage so god's judgment is not just what you do it's also what's in your heart and mind because he cares about you and your soul is what he values more than anything so uh one john chapter five verses one to five we're almost done everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So people that are Christians have a natural tendency to love Christians. Sometimes you might, if you're a Christian, sometimes you might find yourself excited when you see another Christian. Just something in your heart just boils over. Because God does this thing where He really makes you part of the body of Christ. It's part of this community that's held together by the power and Spirit of God. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's something supernatural that I could never put into words other than what God has already put in His Word. Because I've never been taught about this until I turned to Christ. I didn't know about him until seven years ago and I was a mess on my way to hell until he came in so I'm grateful to have this knowledge of God but I get it from the Bible I don't get it more from other people than I do from the Bible because people mess up I mess up so take all these words and just verify it by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So there's, this, uh, there's a verse in, in Matthew that also touches on this, and I'll explain it. But it, it, a lot of people might be questioning their own faith. They might have tendencies. They might have struggles. They, they might be slipping and stumbling in certain areas. I think a good way to test and see are you really in the faith, to evaluate, is to look at God's Word. When you spend time in God's Word, you see the expectations and you can evaluate honestly on your own, or maybe if you have somebody you trust, you can evaluate your own walk. You can evaluate your own inclination to follow God. Because if you see even a little bit of the love for God's Word, and you see a love for, for the Christian community, then you can see that you have the Spirit of God in you. If you see the change and the repentance and the unwillingness to sin and, and, the, and the distress over your own sins, uh, conviction, genuine conviction, you see a strive and a drive to follow and know God. According to that, if you've already put your trust in Jesus and you don't continue living in obvious blatant sin, even if you do struggle in certain ways, you can, according to God's word, be confident that you have the Spirit of God in you. I mean, there's, there's so many other things you can do, but sometimes people question it. But just consider, do you have a desire? Do you obey uh, His commandments? Do you love the brethren? Do you love that? Because God says that's a great way to understand whether or not you're actually in the faith. So... Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30 is a very common uh, quoted section of ver uh, scripture and says, Come to me, this is Jesus speaking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke or my steering device, take that upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in 1 John chapter 5, I, I believe it was uh, verse verse 4 um it, it just it just said and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world so the commands of god are not truly burdensome to a christian um they're they're impossible and burdensome to somebody that doesn't have the faith because once you turn to god the holy spirit gives you the power to actually overcome temptation more and more as you grow in your faith. So it's incredible because some people try to do this on their own and it's like, you can't, you can't do this on your own. And that's, that's where the hard part is. Not being religious, uh, but actually being faithful and submissive and humble. That's the hard part because that means you must die to yourself. You must put your life and say, God, this is what I've planned, wanted, dreamed, desired. I give it to you even if you take it all away and change it completely for something I don't right now want. If it's what you want, I'll submit to that. That's the hardest thing to do, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, to actually obey the gospel and the commands. It's actually 
hard to even think about that. So uh, that's definitely something to consider. Last verse, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. It says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It is hard to come to Christ. Because you must live a life you've never lived, not by your own strength, but you must give up a life you have lived by your own strength with all the pleasures that come with it. I mean, you got all your own desires. You wake up and say, what do I want to do? That's the natural stance of almost every human being in the world. But everyone that turns to Christ should learn and become mature and and grow into this desire to say every morning, thank you, God, for waking me up. Now, what do you want me to do? Even though you might already have your work plans, you might already have certain things planned out, a schedule, an agenda, but lay it before the feet of Christ. Say, God, if you want to change this, arrange it in a way that I wouldn't see fit, but you do, let that be. Because let your will be done, not mine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, respected, honored, and glorified be your name. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done in my life. Accomplish it. Even if I have to lose all of my desires, all the things that I've planned, even if I have to start from scratch in my eyes, but you've prepared something for me, let it be. Because I want to do the right thing. I want to do what you actually call me to do. So that's, that's the stance. Uh, true love is not necessarily feelings. True love is not necessarily how you feel about somebody because in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it, it points out what is love. Love is, love is patient. Love is kind. Uh, love is not arrogant. It's not easily offended. It, does, it doesn't boast. It doesn't rejoice when people do bad things. It rejoices with the truth. Uh, so love is action. And yes, there are feelings that go into love relationships. But attraction to somebody does not necessitate that it is right. There are now a days grown men that are attracted to young children that for them is very natural and I'm not trying to make an offensive comparison but I am also saying that is an attraction and the same way they feel attracted to young children is the same way a homosexual and a heterosexual couple are attracted to each other the attraction does not deem that it's right some people are attracted to the fourth slice of pizza but for them it's healthy to only have two some people are attracted to all kinds of things our feelings our desires our urges but they aren't necessarily condoned or approved of by God And in the Bible, it says we're all broken. So we can't just go off of what's natural. We must choose what is supernatural, what is godly, what is right. And the commands of God will not fade. They will not change, and they will be fulfilled completely. So none of God's laws or rules or standards change just because society updates with some things or gets some kind of knowledge. It doesn't matter if there's some animals in the world that practice homosexual relationships. It doesn't matter if there's animals that have asexual relationships. God has one way for us as people. And he didn't create us as little amoebas to make our way to cavemen and then try to figure out how to speak. He created us with language, intellect, and knowledge in the very, very beginning. And he gave us a way. And everyone went the wrong way. So everyone is equal in that plane of disobedience. But not everybody's equal in role. Men have one role. Women have another. A man shouldn't have a baby in his stomach. A woman should. Not every woman will, and some men will try. But that's not right. What's right is what God has said. And you see a lot of social structure and order when we do obey God. You see the glory going to God when, when we actually follow through with that. But to anybody that preaches and says, you know, here's what the Bible says, you know, this was actually uh, him approving of this or approving that. It's like, listen, just because in the Old Testament you weren't allowed to eat some things doesn't mean that in the Old Testament when it says homosexuality is sin, is an abomination, doesn't mean that now it's not. You know, a lying tongue 
in the book of Proverbs, I believe, a lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. So homosexuality is not the greatest of abominations. It's listed as an abomination because it goes completely against the truth. And so does a lying tongue. Somebody that lies speaks against the truth. So we need to consider what is God's standard and why are we fighting for something against it? And is there truly a blessing in that? Because God says he's going to judge everybody. No matter who you are, how hard you tried, no matter how much time you've devoted to studying into something, if what we do does not line up with the word of God, and it's not correct, then it is sin. It's sin, and if we don't repent of it, and we don't cease to practice it, even if there might still be some residing feelings, uh, then we will be judged for that as truly unfaithful, truly unrepentant, truly not being believers in Jesus. And we won't have that covering that Jesus gives through his sacrifice on the cross. So we're going to bear our own sin. And God says nobody's going to be innocent. Even the best deeds that we accomplish without Christ as our king, the best deeds that we accomplish are pretty much just dirty rags in God's eyes. He's like, that's not good enough. My beloved son died on the cross for you. There's nothing I'll take other than that. Nothing less than that. Nothing that seems or wants to be more than that. There's nothing greater, more valuable than the blood of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So consider that because your salvation is at, at stake. And I hope, I hope that we can actually bring up these kinds of issues during this topic because this is gonna this is gonna stay this topic is not gonna go anywhere I, I don't i don't see anybody immediately giving up the the fight for lgbtq but maybe maybe on on this side of the spectrum we can begin starting this conversation in a new way god bless you all in the name of jesus christ milk and me podcast and i'm andrew krimkovich thank you